All right, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And as you're turning there, and as I'm turning there, I've got to tell you, I'm a little surprised that we're here in this text this morning. Uh, it's uh, this, some of the same verses that Sean used uh, Maundy Thursday evening. Uh, and I've been thinking about a different text for this morning, uh, but Maundy Thursday, sitting right there, uh, changed my mind. Uh, Sean read these verses in his larger passage, and I gained some clarity that night on a passage that I just really was not too fond of before and, and felt a little conflicted about. It just didn't sit right with me. Uh, so let's look at that passage together and then figure out what in the world I'm talking about with all this. Uh, chapter 23, verse 39 right in here in the middle of this crucifixion account, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go together in prayer. Oh God, we need your help. Holy Spirit, come even in these moments. And help us to understand this word that you inspired. Give us insight. Help us to see and understand the gospel as it's so clearly presented in these verses. Bring great conviction. Bring the power of your word to bear upon each of us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So why so conflicted over this? It seems simple enough. The criminal finds salvation in the very last moments of his life. Good for him, right? And I should be happy for him. But instead I've just been troubled by this. Troubled by a couple of things. First... Is just, I'm afraid that people are going to look at this account and they're going to abuse it. Oh, so I can live any way I want, basically, and as long as I ask Jesus to save me right before I die, I'll be okay. Is that how it works? I agree. I mean, this dude lives a life of crime. And he's sentenced to death, and at the 11th hour has a religious experience, and we all live happily ever after, right? Which makes me think of Sean last week in his sermon talking about films or movies that end with everybody happily ever after versus films. Right, that have all this 
angst at the end of them and this unresolved stuff. Um, I like films. I love that unresolved tension, the, the questions that are still lingering, and it fades to black and the credits roll and you're left going, what? I love that kind of stuff. I, I don't like when things are put in a nice, neat little box and you tie a pretty little ribbon on top, right? Maybe that's part of why I'm not too fond of this and I'm afraid that it's going to get abused. So that's one thing where I've experienced some conflict over this passage. The second is, is I just sit back and I'm just skeptical by nature. Those of you who know me know that I'm a skeptic and I'm a cynic. And I say, is this even real? It just seems a little too easy, this, this salvation experience of this, of this guy's. It seems wimpy. It's anemic. And so if I were honest with you, I would tell you that, that I'm always a little skeptical of deathbed confessions. Right? I want them to be true. Right? Especially when it's somebody that I know and that I love. I want them to be true. But I'm skeptical a lot of times. And so as I've wrestled with this passage my mind has gone to three other places in scripture and they're not exact parallels um, but they express some of the same emotions and some of the same reservations that that maybe I've been experiencing Uh, one of which would just would be the older brother right if you know this this parable in Luke 15 uh, of these these two brothers it's the the prodigal son is, is probably how you know it but there are two brothers Father's still alive, and the younger brother takes his part of the inheritance and goes off and just blows it. And I mean blows it royally. Reckless, loose, promiscuous living. He blows through the entirety of it, and then he comes back to Daddy. And Daddy receives him with open arms and gives him the welcome of a king. And so the older brother who stayed at home hating it all the while, probably wishing that he had taken the money and run. He sees how his father receives this younger brother of his, and he comes unglued. He's indignant. When when this grace is poured out on younger brother then everything he thought he was earning is exposed. That's the first place that my mind goes to in Scripture. The second place is somewhere where Sean actually took us recently, and that's Jonah. And it's specifically the last part of Jonah, right, that never gets taught in kids' Sunday school. It's Jonah 4, where after reluctantly and very unenthusiastically, Jonah finally preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent... This is how Jonah responds. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it. I knew that's who you were. See, Jonah's fine with being on the receiving end of God's grace until he goes and he gives it to somebody who in Jonah's estimation doesn't deserve it. Each of these three places that my mind goes to in Scripture just make me feel worse and worse. Um, The third one is is the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 20. So you've got this vineyard owner who at the start of the day goes out and says, Hey, you're standing around, you need work, go work in my vineyard, I'll give you a denarius, a day's wage at the end of your labor. And so they say, all right, and they go and they do their thing. Four more times through the course of the day, he goes back out and finds people standing idly by. And to each group, he says, go work, and at the end of the day, I'll give you what's right. He even does that an hour from quitting time. And so the end of the day comes, and he pays them in reverse order. He starts with those that were hired an hour before quitting time, and guess what they get? A Daenerys. They get a full day's wage, which leaves those first hired kind of scratching their heads. Hmm, what are we going to get? Well, they got a Daenerys too, and they were ticked. They were upset. How dare you make them equal with us? We worked all day, and it was hot. I love how that little detail is added. All right. So there's all my conflict. Right? I'm a very troubled person. I'm very conflicted about this. But all that began to melt away Thursday night, a week ago. When Sean read these verses in the context of his passage, I'd probably, y'all, I've probably read or heard these verses a hundred times. And it was in that moment that the light bulb finally went on for me. And I said, oh, I see what you're doing here. And as I studied this this week, because I still tried to do the other passage that I was thinking about, because that's what I was planning on preaching. And the Lord's just pesky that, that way sometimes. But the more I studied this passage over the course of the week, I got more and more excited, and the light bulb started to shine more and more brightly. And I just, quite frankly, got excited about it and literally just pushed myself away from the desk a few times and was just dumbfounded. Um, these five verses have so much to show us about our salvation. Three things in particular, and I've given you an outline in in your bulletin. The source of our salvation, the essence of salvation, and the critical moment of salvation. So let's start with the source first. One of the big reasons for me to get over being conflicted about this passage, to, to get over being conflicted about this criminal salvation, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? It's his to do with as he pleases. And who am I to question? Okay? And the response of the vineyard owner in Matthew 20 it is very helpful and it's a strong corrective because what does the vineyard owner say when he's challenged about being generous to those hired at the last hour? He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed? Is that not my prerogative? 
What's the source of our salvation? Salvation is the Lord's. It's His to do with as He pleases. It comes from Him. He's the source. And if we pay close attention to the context of these verses, we're forced to consider another aspect of this. Because we have not one, but we've got two criminals here, right? Who are in the very exact situation. Have lived most likely the exact same lives. Lives of crime. They've both been given a sentence of death. And here they are. Two criminals, one common experience, but two very different outcomes. And so here's the important question for you to consider with this. What makes the difference? They were essentially the same guy. Two very different outcomes. What accounts for that difference? What happened to the one criminal so that he stopped mocking and reviling Jesus? Because if, if we take Matthew's account with this, right? Matthew tells us they both started out reviling him. So what can account for this very sudden and immediate change in this one criminal that didn't happen to the other? Well, maybe the second criminal, he was just he was smarter than the first criminal. And he started connecting the dots and he figured it out and he said, "Aha." Hmm. Maybe he was just more scared. Maybe he was just more afraid of death than the first criminal. Maybe that is what accounts for the difference. The question boils down to this. Was the difference maker something inside him? Or was it something outside of him? Was it some external force or person exerting influence on him? I'm going to let you chew on that a little bit as we move on to the second point. The essence of salvation. Of what does salvation consist? What is the stuff that salvation is made of? How does it come about? Because all this criminal did was ask Jesus to remember him. Right? Is that enough? You know, that, I guess that's the part that seems a little anemic to me. Jesus, remember me. But let's step back and look carefully at this. Step way back first to think about the sum total of Scripture when, it's, when it speaks of and describes salvation. What's involved? It seems that there are two necessary components, for lack of a better word, and that's a terrible word, but I couldn't do any better, sorry. And this is probably best summed up by Jesus himself. The very first words that Mark records of his earthly ministry. Mark 1.15, he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So 
So it seems from, from Scripture that salvation consists of repentance and belief or, or faith. Uh, there's got to be some type of owning of and turning from sin and sinfulness. Right? That's repentance. It's, it's a lot of things, but it's not less than that. Owning of and, and turning from sin and sinfulness. But there's also got to be a belief component. There's also got to be a faith part of it where you're placing your trust in the provision that's been made for that very sinfulness. So what's the essence of salvation? Repentance and faith. And so as we're looking at this experience that this criminal has, are these two things on display? These, these scriptural hallmarks of salvation. And the more I looked at this, oh, how surprised I was at what I found. And, and I think it's helpful if we look at both appeals for salvation. Not just the second criminals, but the, you saw that the first criminal had an appeal for salvation, right? Verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Let me just throw that in there just in case. Just in case this whole thing turns out to be real. Right? Save us too. So as a technicality, the first criminal asks to be saved. But clearly this is the one that's wimpy and anemic. And lacking. There's no repentance involved here. There's certainly no faith involved here. This is asking to be saved without believing that he can do it. And so with that as our foil, now let's look at the second request. Far from anemic and wimpy, it's strong. It is robust. Uh, First look at, at... the evidence of repentance, verses 40 and 41. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. He's owning his sinfulness. He's owning the justice that's about to come to him. Now let me briefly jump back to that that first point and that question that I left you with to chew on a little bit. Is it something from inside or is it something from outside? Because we see now that this criminal has a very clear understanding of his own condition and of Jesus' condition. He sees that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, but he knows that he has, and he knows he's about to get his just desserts. He's got a very clear knowledge of himself and of God. If you look at Calvin and how he starts the Institutes, right? that's it right there. You've got to have a very clear understanding of who you are 
and of, and of who God is. And frankly, that's just not going to come from deep within inside you. That's given to you externally. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Opening blind eyes, removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. So there's definitely repentance on display here by this criminal. And there's also faith. Man, is there faith. Robust faith. Humbling faith, right? The more I read and studied this week, the more I realized that that my faith is the one that's wimpy and anemic compared to his. Right, this request that he makes, it seems so simple, but it's profound. Verse 42, remember me, Jesus. One of the only places in Luke's gospel that anybody ever calls him just simply by his name, Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All right, so let's look at the the two parts of this. Jesus, remember me. It is simple, right? This guy's got nothing to offer, right? If ever the hymn lyrics were true, right? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee. If ever they were true, they were true of this guy. He had nothing. So he says, remember me, but it's the next part that gets me. When you come into your kingdom, y'all, this is staggering. This is extraordinary faith that must be coming from some external place as a gift of grace. Because here Jesus is at his weakest, at his lowest, in this ghastly form, shredded flesh, Bleeding out, he could not look any less royal if he tried. And yet here this man is thinking that he's a king with a kingdom. This blew my mind all week long. Where are Jesus' followers right now? In this moment, they've scattered like roaches when you flip on the light switch. Think about the crowds. Think about all that they saw. They saw Jesus heal people, feed people, exercise demons, raise people from the dead, and they didn't believe. And yet here this man is seeing Jesus being put to death. And he says, you're a king and I want to be in your kingdom. I felt so rebuked by this man's faith all week long that I thought was anemic and wimpy. And is this even for real? Y'all, he gets it. He gets it. I I do hope that you're encouraged and you are strengthened and you are comforted by this passage um, by by several things. Not less than the fact that that you can't be too far gone. For Jesus to save you. Right? You can't be too bad for his grace to reach you. 
And I do hope that you're comforted by Jesus' words of assurance to this man that are recorded in verse 43. Truly. Right? So there's whatever stamp of authenticity we need about this man's experience, there it is. Truly. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, says, truly this man, truly you will be with me today. Here's all the verification that we need of the reality of this man's faith. Now let's finish by looking at this third point. The the critical moment of salvation. Because this, this, this other part of why I've been so conflicted about this passage, that I'm afraid that it will be abused, that did not go away as I studied this week. I'm still just as concerned that people will look at this passage and will abuse it. That they'll look at this criminal and the salvation that he found in the last moments of life and they will foolishly think, well, I can wait too. I've got time. I'll get right with God later. I don't have to worry about that right now. Friend, if this morning that is your thinking, you are a fool. You are a fool, and I would beg you to reconsider. Because you know what? None of us is guaranteed that we'll even have a deathbed. We don't know that. right? The heart stops beating like that. The 18-wheeler swerves into your lane like that. We're not guaranteed that we'll even know that our time is approaching. The end that you're banking on may very well sneak up on you like a thief. And even if, even if you do have a deathbed and you're aware of what's approaching, you know what the other thing that you're not guaranteed of? Is that you'll have a soft heart at the end. You might be like this first criminal. The first criminal knew what was coming and he was consumed with anger and with bitterness. He was no more willing to receive the free offer of the gospel in that moment. You just don't know. You just don't know. And so friend, the critical moment of salvation is now. It's now. If there's any inkling in your heart at all of an awareness of your sin and of your deserving to be punished for it, and if there's any fledgling belief at all that Jesus took the punishment for you, then the call for you today is to repent, to own that sin, to own those just desserts that you will receive, and to believe, to trust that Jesus did it.
today, while it is still called today, own your sin. Trust the Lord Jesus has taken it for you. This is no wimpy salvation at all. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of your Holy Spirit in helping us understand it. Father, I do pray that if anyone here is clinging on to the foolish notion that I can wait, that I can get right with God on my own time or on my own terms, or by the power of Your Spirit, remove that foolish thinking and replace it with the gift of faith, the grace of repentance that today might be the day of salvation. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.